Amen. Well, let us read all 14 verses of Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll explain why we're going to do so here in just a moment. But hear now the Word of God, people of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, though whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, during this Advent season, we've been exploring the first four verses of this epistle to the Hebrews. And we've been recognizing how the author of Hebrews lends itself to remembering the Christmas story. And we know that Christmas story well. We could probably all quote it from our minds. It's the story that we just proclaim through song, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus, God, man, very God, and very man, truly God and truly man, came down from heaven took upon Himself flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. And and then, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, He grew up and suffered. He was persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, He was dead and buried. And we call that the humiliation of Christ. It's the humbling of Christ, the very God in the flesh, as He laid down His life as a ransom for many, as He comes in the form of a baby that we celebrate during Christmas. And that Christmas story, yes, is proclaimed to us here in these first four verses. But ultimately, what the author of Hebrews wants you to see is what we call the exaltation of Jesus. Because we know the Easter story is even we think about the Christmas story, don't we? That the grave could not hold our Savior, but the Father raised the Son up in victory so that He might give for His people eternal life so that He might ascend back into the heavenly places, so that He might take His rightful place at the right hand 
of the Father so that He might be the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all of His people might adore Him forever and ever. You see, this humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, as we often call it, it reminds us, I believe, of the proclamation that Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 is declaring to us. That as we celebrate Christmas, even as we celebrate holidays like Easter, those are kind of the two highest points in the church calendar, you might say. One of the deacons this afternoon goes, it's the Super Bowl tonight, isn't it? And it's something of that for the preacher. But we have these two high points in the the Christian church year, and it all revolves around this proclamation that Jesus Christ embodied God so that when we see the Son, we might see the Father just as Jesus declared. And just to kind of emphasize, to acknowledge how superior this Christ is that we celebrate this Christmas Eve night. This little baby, God in the flesh, is not just some meager baby, but He is the Lord who is superior, who has a name that is greater than the angels. That's the assertion there in verse 4. And the reason why we read verses 5 through 14 is that Now the author of Hebrews wants to take seven Old Testament examples. And anytime you see seven within the Bible, it's not by accident. It's very intentional. The the author wants you to find the completeness or the totality of what he's trying to say. He takes these seven Old Testament texts to emphasize, to highlight, to... to, He almost wants to, to jar you a bit to say, don't you understand this Christ? Jesus our Lord is the one who the angels, even the angels, worship. He is the one that even the angels worship. And why does He, why does he want us to understand that? Because He is superior to the angels. I'm going to handle this verse, verse 4, really in two points. I want us to see first that He's simply superior. That's what the author of Hebrews says here, he is superior to angels. And and why would you think that the author of Hebrews here in verse 4 chooses angels? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe your mind doesn't work exactly like mine, and that's probably a good thing if you think about it. But, But if you think about it, why would the author of Hebrews choose the angels? Isn't there a lot of different things that he could compare Christ to and say that Christ is better than? Well, surely there are. Already in the first four verses, he says that Jesus Christ is the better prophet. We know marvelous prophets of the Old Testament, don't we? And we know the marvelous stories of these Old Testament prophets, the things that they said, the things that they saw, the things that they did. And, and yet... The author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than them. And and so later on in in the story, he'll say that Jesus is the greater Moses, that Jesus is the greater Noah, that Jesus is the greater David, that Jesus is the greater promise of the Scriptures. He's going to use all of these different examples, but from the outset, he wants us to understand that Jesus is greater than the angels. And And it's the angels that he starts with. 
here as he begins to, to unpack this sermon, because this letter is one big sermon most scholars believe. So he begins to unpack this sermon. He wants us to see the angels because we have a lot of respect for the angels, don't we? It's Christmas season. We know something about angels sitting on top of our Christmas trees. We know stories throughout the scriptures of the angels. They cause us to, to you know, they cause us awe and wonder. They, they call, you know, they cause us to, to fear even sometimes throughout the scriptures. In all 108 times angels are mentioned in the Old Testament, there's a sudden reaction. All 165 times angels are mentioned in the New Testament, there's sudden reactions and it, it captivates us. We want to know what they look like. We want to know what they do. And the Bible tells us all that we need to know about them. But the first thing that it ever tells us about them is that they were created. That they were created. And that's something we need to ponder, I think, because we think about ourselves as created. We think about the creation narrative, how God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and He forms Eve out of the rib of the man. We, we think about the way in which the Lord speaks and the seas are there and the light crosses the sky and, and the sun and the moon shine. We think about all these things, and yet do we think about the angels being a part of the created order like me and you? You see, what happens at the very first of creation when God creates the heavens and the earth is that He creates the angels so that they might celebrate, so that they might excitingly sing about the handiwork of God as He creates all things by the breath of His mouth. And so we have this understanding that they're created like us, but they're also different than us, aren't they? They exist in spiritual form. They have a righteousness, a holiness, a beauty that we don't possess. They're not like us. And that's why they captivate us. But what the author of Hebrews says is no matter what you think about the angels, the majesty that is beheld in them, the, the glory that shines from them, the, the radiance that pours out from their very figures. All of that pales in comparison to the sun. And why is that the case? Because the sun is God. The sun is God in the flesh. And so when we think about the angel stories, and we know a lot of them. One of my favorite stories is in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel sees the many thrones surrounding this centralized throne there in heaven. And he tells us about the, the one sitting on this central throne is, is God Himself. And we know that because of the fiery flames and the white garments that Daniel sees. But he says, around this throne I see a thousand thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 of angels standing at the ready. And that's the posture. That posture is what we need to think about when we think about angels. Because they're standing at the ready to serve their Master. 
They're standing at the ready to serve their master. You see, part of the created order that the angels belong to, the reason in which Christ as the Son of God is superior than the angels is because they were created to exist and to be and to move at the command of their Lord. The Lord who is the Son. They're created to worship and to serve Him, their Master. And so how unlike Jesus is the angels? Well, the first thing that we can understand through the ordinary Christmas stories that we know is that the angels are not omnipresent like our Lord Jesus. We believe in the omnipresence of Jesus, we say. And that simply means that by His Spirit, Jesus is everywhere, all places at all times. And we actually believe that He's especially here by His Spirit because we're gathered on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people. But you think about the stories. You think about the story of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, the young virgin girl in the Gospel of Luke. And you think about how Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she is going to be with child and she is going to be the chosen one of God who would bear the redeeming Son, the promised Messiah, Jesus. And as quickly as Gabriel comes, he leaves. I love what John Calvin, one of our great forefathers in the faith, says. He goes, Gabriel fulfills his order, he returns to heaven, and he awaits his next commission. And we know that that next commission is just a few verses later in Luke's Gospel. When he appears to Zechariah and tells Zechariah that, that his wife, her womb, is now with child, John the Baptist. And that he would be the one who would make the way straight for the Lord Jesus. Prepare the world for his ministry. And again, we see Gabriel coming and going. He returns to heaven and awaits His next assignment. You see, if this was the Lord Jesus, He would just appear and be. But the angels, they are waiting, standing at the ready for God's beckoning call. The shepherds, as they were watching their flocks in the field, first this one angelic messenger, isn't it? We read this during our call to worship. Who declares the good news of great joy that a Savior has been born. And then a host of angels appear. And they're praising God and they're saying, Glory to God in the highest. And it's a marvelous scene. A marvelous scene as the angels burst through the sky and this radiance of glory appears. The glory of God appears. But just like Gabriel, this angelic choir fulfills their orders, returns to heaven, and awaits their next excitement because they are servants of the Master. And... And even if you think about that, that story, that story of the angels appearing before the shepherds, you'll actually see it there on the very front of your bulletin in Luke chapter 2. It says, suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts, angels, and what are they doing? They're praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, what we need to understand about the angels is that they are inferior to Christ and therefore they worship Christ. They worship Christ. Angels are not worthy of our worship, but the Son is. 
And you think, well, Matt, that's kind of a... Yeah, we know that. You, you might sit there and you think, yeah, I know, I can't worship angels. But, but did you know the Apostle John wanted to worship angels? When, when, when John has his revelation of, of heaven... He sees the heavens open before Him and He sees the glories that await the people of God when Christ returns and, and He's overwhelmed by what He's seeing and then all of a sudden approaches the apostle, an angel. And He says, surely this is part of the glory, but, but it's even more beautiful than anything I've seen already. And so John, twice actually, in Revelation 19 and Revelation chapter 22, he sees this angel and he falls on his face and he worships, or at least he attempts to worship the angel and the angel actually rebukes him and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant of the Most High God. You must worship Him. And why is Christ superior to the angels? It's because He's worthy of our worship. The angels even understand that they are not worthy of worship. No, it is God who is worthy of our worship. And that's what we need to see as our second point. We need to see that the angels worship the Son. The Son is superior to the angels, therefore the angels worship the Son. If you look at verse 6, again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. You know, it's difficult to imagine the glories of the angels. You know, we could spend, we could spend a whole sermon series of 10, 12, 15 sermons talking about the different functions of angels, talking about the different ways in which angels work in God's creation. Angels are very much a, a declaration of of God's favor upon His people. That He commands the angels as their master to intercede on His people's behalf. They do all of these marvelous things. Protect God. Reveal. They serve as messengers. And many theologians have done a great job declaring all the functions and the glories that are beyond our human understanding. But what we need to see here is the primary function is that they worship the Son. That they adore their God. When Isaiah sees the heavens open in Isaiah 6, what are the angels doing? They're worshiping the Lord. When Daniel sees the heavens open in Daniel chapter 7, what are they doing? The angels are standing at the ready for, yes, the Lord's commission, but while they're waiting, they worship. When the shepherds see the angelic host burst through the sky, what are they doing? They're praising God and singing. And when the Apostle John sees the heavens opened all through Revelation, what are the angels doing? They are worshiping. You see, it is the angels' duty to worship the Lord. It's the angels' duty to worship the Son. Let all of God's angels worship Him, it says. And why is that the case? Because He has become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The way in which the author of Hebrews writes here 
is the same way in which the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to turn there, but if not, just simply hear this. You'll know the text. It's a very familiar text to us, talking about this exaltation of Jesus. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that it is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice what it says there? That Jesus has the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, all people will bow, yes, but all angels will bow as well. They will bow in worship to their God. The great Southern Presbyterian theologian R.L. Dabney says, the good angels are always engaged in the worship and adoration of their Lord. Why are they worshiping the Lord? Because their Master, their Creator, their God, the Son, is now seating upon His throne. He has the place of honor. His enemies are His footstool. And now, He is worthy of our worship. And we should do exactly what the angels are doing. You know, we should be like the angels. We should be full of praise, thanksgiving, adoration. We should be standing at the ready to obey, just like the angelic host. You know, the mystery of the angels reveals a deep understanding of God, how He cares for us, how He loves us, how He gives us good gifts from above. And it should never be our response to sit back and just say, well, thank you. It should always be our response to, to, to live a deeper life of righteousness and, and worship. You think about... You think about angels and you think about how Christ is superior to the angels and you think, well, how does this affect my heart? How does this affect my life? How does this affect my daily living? And if nothing else, it should affect us into saying, I need to be a better servant of my Master. I need to be a better servant of my Master. I need to stand at the ready in obedience. I need to worship Him in the splendor of holiness. I need to focus as the angel's focus is Christ. My focus needs to be Him. The great Puritan John Flavel, he says, those that hope to live with the angels in heaven must learn to live like the angels on earth in holiness, activity, and ready obedience. Why? Why? Because the Son, who was born on that first Christmas morn, He is God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our obedience. 
And so let us learn to live like the angels on earth in holiness, activity, and ready obedience. And if you think about it, beloved, all those who profess Christ as their Savior, we have more reason to do so than the angels, don't we? The angels have seen the creation of of the world. The angels have inhabited the heavenly places. You say, well, it's easy for them to worship. But beloved, it should be even easier for you to worship. Because we have been saved from our sins. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have been brought from spiritual death to life everlasting. We have been counted in the righteousness of Christ, adopted into the family of God. We are the apple of God's eye. We are the apple of God's eye, and we are the reason in which Christ came that first advent. And we are the reason which Christ will come again His second advent. And so we come to the Lord's table to commune with Him. Have you ever thought about this as we see the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation? Of course, this table is just a foretaste of that heavenly meal that is to come. It's not the angels that get to sit with Christ and eat. It's not the angels who get the place of honor at the marriage supper of the Lamb. No, beloved, it's you. You, as you profess faith in Christ, you get to sit and you get to dine at the Lord's table with Jesus. The Lord Jesus invites you to come, to commune with Him, to eat with Him, to share this simple meal with Him. And He's the one that enables us to come as we come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so this is not the table of First Presbyterian Church, nor is this the table of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America. This is the table of the Lord. And so all those who profess faith in Christ, who belong to Christ's church, you are welcome to come to this table. It's not much for the physical body. Some of you might be getting ready for Christmas Eve meals with families. And you're growing hungry. This meal will not satisfy or curb that hunger. But it is much for the spiritual body. It's just a simple piece of bread and a simple cup of juice. But the Lord Jesus has declared that this is a visual reminder of the life that was given up on the cross of Calvary for you. But it's also a foretaste of the best of wines and the best of foods that we will feast with Christ with in heaven. And so if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've called upon Him as the Savior and Lord of your life, if you have repented of your sins and pursue Christ-likeness, beloved, you take and you eat. You come and you see that the Lord, He is good and He is faithful to His people. But I would be amiss to remind you that there is a spiritual fence around this table. The Apostle Paul tells us that we must eat and drink in a worthy manner. And so if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we ask you as a session, as the elders of this church, not to partake. The Apostle Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment upon your soul. So, what do you do if you're not a believer while we're partaking in this meal? You call upon Christ. You repent of your sins and believe upon His name and you will be saved. And beloved, if you're harboring sin within your heart, if there's sin within your heart that you have committed, that you're holding on to and you cannot let it go, you have not repented of that sin, we ask that you would let these elements pass you by as well. What do you do if that's you? Well, you plead the blood of Jesus Christ over those sins. 
for all who come in repentance and faith, and all who would give up their sins and turn towards Christ, the blood of Jesus will wash all of those sins away. He can give you a right standing with Him. But for all those who can say, I've repented of my sins and I have believed upon the Lord Jesus, and I'm striving daily to live for Him and like Him, and I worship Him and Him alone as my Lord and Savior, you come, you take, and you eat. For this meal is for you. Let me pray as the elders come, and then we'll partake together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this meal, and we're about to partake in. And we pray, Lord, that it would be a, a means of grace to us even this day, that you would use it, Lord, for our benefit, that you would make it effective for us, that you would use this simple meal as, a, as an encouragement in our daily walk with you, that we might pilgrim well, so that we might be about the Lord's business. So strengthen us, nourish us, we pray in Christ's name as we partake together. Amen and amen.